Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-OK. known fact about my guest today, she was born Terry Sue, but changed her name to Tova. And by doing so, the roles, the characters, the stories she was able to tell have created pieces of art that live in our minds and hearts and have done so for decades. Welcome Tova Felchi to the podcast. A-OK. My guest today is Tova Felchu. Tova is a six-time Emmy and Tony nominee and is currently performing in her 10th Broadway show, Funny Girl. Previous Broadway credits include Yentl, Cyrano, Rogers and Hart, Trifus in Rehearsal, Sarava, Lend Me a Tenor, Gold is Balcony, Irina's Vow, and Pippin. She wrote an extraordinary memoir called Lilyville, focused on the story of her growing up and her relationship with her mother. Some of her many film credits include Kissing Jessica Stein, A Walk on the Moon, Brewster's Millions, Just My Luck, Daniel, The Idolmaker, Golda's Balcony, and in the last few months, she has completed two features, one playing Sir Anthony Hopkins' wife and Anne Hathaway's mother in Armageddon, and the second playing the matriarch Rosalind Russell in Start Without Me. On TV, she can be seen on The Walking Dead, Law and Order, POTUS, Salvation, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and Scenes from a Marriage. She really is um, a staple of the New York theater and our movie and, and television screens. Tova, welcome to Little Known Facts. Thank you so much, Lana. You are so welcome. Um, so I'm speaking with you today on a Thursday. You started Funny Girl how long ago now? four weeks. Tell me what your relationship is to Funny Girl. Well, 
I got a call from my beloved pal, Daryl Roth, who's produced, I've worked for her two or three times, most notably uh, in Arena's Vow by Dan Gordon, which, uh, which played the Walter Kerr. And <clears throat> she said, would you be interested in playing Rosie Bryce? And I think the call came in around May. And I said, I wouldn't be uninterested. Send me the script and let me see the show. And I watched the show twice. And then I heard that they were finalizing negotiations with Leah Michelle and that I would be paired with her. And I took the opportunity to say yes, never knowing for a minute that it would be the explosion it has become. You, you don't know what you're in until you're in it. When I did the Holocaust miniseries, which was the second miniseries in the history of television, if you think we thought it would be become world-renowned at the time and change the textbooks in Germany, it's not true. We didn't, we didn't know. We didn't know what the consequences would be. Likewise, how many times do you get to do a show where you're not worried about ticket sales, where you're so sold out, where there are standing ovations mid-show? for a great star. And I think that Fanny Bryce is the greatest role written in the American musical theater for a woman. The greatest, I say, more than Mama Rose, because Mama Rose shares the stage with Gypsy Rose Lee. This mm -hmm. one is the hub of her own wheel. This mm -hmm. is the story of Fanny Bryce and the brilliant Ramin Karamalu and the brilliant Jared Grimes, and I hope the very good me, uh, we are the spokes in her wheel. We're the three, uh, most uh, notable spokes, but the entire cast is. Did you uh, love the movie? What was your relationship to the original show? Well, I'm about to give you my little known fact that would be at the end of the show. <laughs> okay. Coming up because you keep asking. I auditioned for Funny Girl uh, in one of its many incarnations when they wanted to mount it. And I made it to the finals and Julie Stein walked up to me and he said, you are so funny, but you're not funny looking. And I didn't get the job. And I don't think anybody got the job. I think the piece was abandoned again because everybody was concerned about filling the shoes of the legendary and astonishing Barbara Streisand. And that went on for 60 years. So I was no longer eligible for Fanny, who's supposed to be a teenager. As a matter of fact, uh, Another little known fact is that my first day of rehearsal, uh, it says, and you serve beer to your children. I said, not this Jewish mother doesn't. I said, we have to change the labels. Oh, nobody will know. I said, I will know. Mm -hmm. Florence Ziegfeld bought the best Parisian underwear for the Ziegfeld Follies. They say, Flo, why did you spend so much money on the underwear of these girls? Nobody sees, the, sees it. And she, he said, the women see it, the girls see it. So I serve uh, Eddie Ryan and my little daughter, Fanny, sarsaparilla, not uh -huh. drinks. And those details, I was very lucky because working with Michael Mayer, he did not ask us to replace, he asked us to recreate. And he gave us latitude to do so in our own fashion. And I think that's what makes the performances. Yeah, um, I always wondered, you know, there's a lot of focus on this being Jewish, a Jewish family. Can you talk to me about the last name Bryce? Do you have a thought about that? Yeah, it's a change name. Just like I was born Terry Sue and my Hebrew name is Tove and I took it on when I fell in love with a Christian boy named Michael Fairchild who was at Wesleyan. And uh, I, like a 17 or an eight, I, was, I think I was barely 18. I had no idea that changing my name would change the entire landscape of my life. Mm -hmm. And now now that I'm in my third act and I, I promise you I will have four acts, I plan to live to 104, 
but now that I am in, in my senior citizenship, anybody who's vaguely happy with their life is happy with their choices. In other words, there's no reason to regret taking on Tova Felchu versus Terry Sue Felchu 50 years ago when I've spent two thirds of my life as that, with that name. And what happened is that my perceived value completely changed. And um, I think it brought me luck. I think I had to fight to play Catherine Hepburn. I had to fight, fight to play Three Queens of Henry VIII, but I never had to fight to play Yentl, Holocaust, um, uh, Golda Meir, uh, Naomi Bunch in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, mm -hmm. and uh, Daniel Melnick in Law and Order, and in this case, Rosie Bryce. I mean, I didn't audition for Rosie Bryce. And um, her first, first of all, her name isn't Rosie Bryce, it's Rosie Branagh. And it was changed for the stage. Mm -hmm. She owned four saloons, not in Brooklyn. She owned four saloons in Manhattan. Now she owned one saloon in Brooklyn. And I'm the first person of the Jewish religion to play Rosie Bryce in New York. It's been given to Irish Catholic actresses or yeah. actresses of the Irish Catholic background. Yeah. Which is really interesting. So uh, Harvey Farstein in rewriting this, clearly it says Mazel Tov Fanny right across Henry Street. So there are changes in this production that you can bet your vippy we're not in in 1964. After all, 1964 was less than 20 years after World War II. Mm -hmm. These were very, very busy wanting to be American and assimilating and going to Brooks Brothers. I mean, there may not have been Japanese or German cars in Scarsdale, New York, where I was brought up, but I was in Scarsdale, New York, and I owned a horse, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And my father would say, how often can a little girl tell a big animal what to do? So we were, and this was before La Ralph Lauren. I remember there was John Meyer of Norwich, who was the first one, this Connecticut Jew, who actually related, I think, vaguely to Jennifer Westfeld in some way, because she was related to Marshall Meyer. The first Jew who had that piercing insight into what do, what do the American Brahmins wear? What do the wasps wear? Oh, mm -hmm. they wear this. Well, let's make this available for everybody. And then Ralph Lauren just flew with it. Yeah. Um, in terms of a Jewish story, it's an immigrant story. Rosie Bronick didn't come here till she was 10. And had I been involved in the production from 1964, 63, I mean, I was just being bat mitzvahed at the time. Had I been involved in it, I, I would have asked for a slight, maybe she spoke with a slight Hungarian accent. Mm -hmm. slight affect that was from um, Hungary, like mm -hmm. all of my grandparents who are from Austria, Germany, Russia, and England. So everybody had, no wonder I speak, you know, five languages. I, I yeah. Sounds when I was a kid. Wait, um, so let me ask you, were you, you know, so much of, of people getting to see Broadway is about proximity. So growing up in New York and, and Westchester, did you, uh, you were aware of Funny Girl when it was on Broadway in the 60s, I imagine. I went to see it. What? I went to see it. Sure. Okay. Do you remember? I mean, you were very young. What I do you remember? Her. You only remember her. You vaguely remember Sidney Chaplin, Kay Medford. These were like spokes in a wheel. You only remembered her. They hired Barbara Streisand. And I believe, uh, this is my assumption, I could be wrong. In my mythology or my folkloric tale about this, I believe they hired her and they wrote for her. The minute they mm -hmm. got her, they added, oh, my man, I love him so, which is not in our show because the show gives much more credence to Nikki Arnstein. Mm -hmm. but we wouldn't get an actor like uh, Ramin, who's mm -hmm. just unbelievable. 
and only has 1% body fat on him. That man is the, is the sexiest thing. I'm so glad my dressing room is next to him. I'm between him and Fanny. And when I say in the second act, there are places a mother doesn't belong in the middle of a marriage is one of them. I'm right in the middle of that marriage, <laughs> architecturally. We share yeah. one floor. It's very exciting to just be with them on one floor. Very cool. Yeah. That's great. That's great. How incredible that you saw that show and what a full circle moment. I want to, um, it's a little it's more okay. than a full circle moment because, because I, I first marquee was Yentl. So my connection right. to Streisand was through it's Yentl. Incredible. Yeah. And Did you have a relationship with her? We became fond acquaintances over the film kissing Jessica Stein. She called me out of the blue to congratulate me about my work as Judy Stein, notably the porch scene. So that was, and she lives across, lived across the street at the Archley, and we live on Central Park West. And we got to a point where she called and she would say, Tova, I'm moving. You want my chazerai, which means my crap in Yiddish. Course, I yes. said, Barbara, the truck is arriving. So I have her crystal. I have her menorah. I have her planters. I even have a pair of Donna Karen sneakers that she gave me. And I said, if I wear these shoes, will I sing better? And she's been absolutely a doll. And then as irony and fate would have it, Sidney Felch, my brilliant father, represented Sheldon Streisand, her brother, and my husband, also a Harvard lawyer like my father, Andrew Harris Levy, represented Barbara Streisand in the sale of that Ardsley apartment, even though he was head of real estate for Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher. You know, when you have unlimited amount of money, you can hire the overqualified to do wild things. So uh, he handled that property for her. So we were connected in, in various wonderful ways. And she's always been wonderful to me, very kind. You know, I would go see her and I'd get to be go, go back to her dressing room. And she was very fond of Andy and he did a very good job for her. So um, I was very lucky. I did see the movie, but I didn't see it again before I took the part. I did not. I just looked at the script and I said, can I make this ping? That would be P-I-N-G. Can I really mine, M-I-N-E, this part? Can I excavate this part to the universal? to the mother-daughter relationship, because not all of it's on the page. I mean, this is a show that's supposed to function for a major journey of Fanny, and Harvey, thank God, added a, another arc, because, because Nicky Arnstein has a very clear arc in this, and I don't remember him at all with Sidney Chaplin. And lore has it that Franny Arnstein, Frances Arnstein, the inheritor of the estate, their one daughter of Nicky and Fanny, uh, did not want Streisand and the and the creators of the of the show, um, Robert Marilyn, Julie Stein, etc. So they absolutely had to have Streisand. He says, well, if you're going to pick Streisand, I'm going to pick Nicky Arnstein. So the father's going to be Sidney Chaplin. And then Sidney Chaplin came and I don't think they found him the answer to their dreams. So he kept fading away and I, I barely remember him. But Harvey is right. You, Fanny's going to look like an idiot if she just falls for any old thing that isn't defined. So I'm very proud of this show. I've been in, it's my 10th Broadway show, and I've had hits, and I've had less successful pieces I've been part of, but I've never been in a theatrical event. This is a theatrical event, and we have a lot of people to thank for it. I want to ask you about, you know, you, you mentioned sort of your, your, given name and then switching your name to Tova professionally and personally. Can you talk a little bit about what the inspiration for that was? So um, 
as I'm talking to you, and I must say this is, you talk about privileged information, this is the first time I ever have had this thought, and I've been on this planet for quite a few decades. Family must mean everything to me. Like my literary agent um, walked in, Albert Lee walked into my living room and he said, what do you want to write about? Family obviously means everything to you. They're all over the mantle. You know, yes, do I have a picture with Anthony Banderas? Do I have a picture with Barbara? Do I have a picture with Margaret Thatcher? Yes, I do. But I have pictures of my family and my father as a baby and my mother as a baby and my grandparents and my grandparents, you know, engagement picture in England before they came to America. So family must mean everything to me. And one of the reasons I changed my name, which I never understood, was not just that Michael Fairchild, who's just a wonderful man, loved Tova. He said, Tova, now that's a name. All the vowels and you go, oh, like your lips pursed together and ah, and your, and your mouth becomes a cathedral. And, uh, you know, it's, it's much more sexual, if you will, and open and feminine than Terry Sue. Terry is a uh, binary name for a man or a woman. And I know that's chic now, but it was not chic in the 50s and 60s when I was growing up. My godfather's dog was named Terry. Terry Culp at Scarsdale High was named Terry, a boy. I got to Paris to study. Terry is a, is a man's name, like Terry Mugler. Um, it was just, Terry didn't exist in Spanish. I was called Teresa. It was just, you know, the Debbies became Deborahs and the Terrys remained Terrys. I was never Teresa or anything like that. But I must have loved Tova, not just for the, for Michael's sake and for being more grown up and more of a sexy dish, it's my lineage. It just hit me. It's the name my forebears had. I was named after my mother's beloved Aunt Tilly, who died early from cancer, and her name was Tova. And um, that must have had a subconscious meaning for me because I've not only not been bothered by the name, I quite like the name. My, my, uh, my speech teacher at Juilliard, uh, Edith Warman Skinner, she would say, I don't know why you have the name Felchu. You should just go like Madonna, one name, Tova. And again, in those days, who would do such a thing? It wasn't legitimate. I came from the classical theater, from the Guthrie Theater, and studied, you know, and did Juliet and Isabella for Jack O'Brien at the National Shakespeare Festival in San Diego, played Stratford opposite Eileen Atkins and As You Like It. I was busy being Tova Felchu, a classically trained actress who could do anything. That was my ambition. My ambition was never fame. It was always excellence, excellence and transformation. And I've lived that dream for five decades, five decades. As a matter of fact, unbeknownst to me, I was talking to a young teenager, he was like 13, and he said, this is your 50th year in film. I said, it is? He said, yes. In 1972, you did Scream Pretty Peggy with Betty Davis. I said, I did for Universal, and I was killed before the credits, but they offered me a contract. And I said, are you offering me a contract because I'm gifted, because you believe that I'm, I have some talent? And they said, no, we're offering you a contract because of your skin. You have the most beautiful skin. I said, you're offering me a contract because of my skin? And then I turned the contract down. They wouldn't pay for my dancing and my singing lessons. I said, you paid for Judy. You paid for Mickey. Why would you pay for... I mean, I think of myself when I was a kid. Boy, did I have... 
I had profound values that I lived by, but in terms of expedient common sense and becoming famous and wealthy, I had I, I didn't operate that way, which is why I had to leave Hollywood at the time. I remember saying back then, if God passes over Hollywood, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah a big apology. Now that has changed. Now this changed now. It's much more sophisticated. And you know, you have geniuses like James Gray living out there. Jane Lynch lives in Montecito. People live all over the place, but right, right. on the West Coast. And um But that sense of, I mean, the integrity I, I understand sort of I understand integrity, but but that kind of self-confidence. I mean, you're a mom, you've raised kids, you can love them, appreciate them, steer them in the right direction. Certain things are just innate. Like there's nothing you can do to give someone self-confidence. It's this thing that comes from within. And where did that understanding, like, can you talk about that, that understanding like, oh, you're not paying for this or that? No, thank you. Like, how did you have that kind of gravitas? It's such a young age. Some of it was innocent, some of it was vision, and a lot of it was Sydney. I could mm-hmm. never write a memoir, Sydneyville, because it would be two pages long. We had very little conflict. I was my right. dad's, right. my dad's girl. He used to sing Terry Sue, doodle doo doo. I love you, doodle doo doo. Yes, I do. He used to sing it, and we'd say, he said, "You're so beautiful. You're a beautiful person." So I've never had any plastic surgery and I don't have Botox. I mean, I have the map of New York over my face. And so the the stage is very kind because you don't see the wrinkles up close and I still have decent features. And of course, as you get older, your cheekbones get bigger because gravity is sitting there, you know, lowering everything, including your your breast down to your belly button. So um, is that is that do you have a do you have an opinion about that or is that just I always think I, I always think I'm good looking. Because uh-huh. my father said I was good looking. And then I look in the mirror and it's shocking to me. So shocking. <laughs> I put a beat in in Funny Girl where I look in the mirror. And the mother looks in the mirror. And I just did what other Rosies didn't choose to do. And I, I look in the mirror. I look at my face. And then I lift my face. Uh-huh. Like as if I'm going to have a facelift. Uh-huh. Audience laughs in recognition. And then I drop my face and I go on with the show. Right. But that moment. Well, who taught her everything she knows? So I asked to tap dance in the show. And of course I sing in the show, but I also dance in the show because where the heck does Fanny get it from? It isn't from somebody who's who's a drunk, who runs a saloon and is some kind of a slob. She's the master of her own ship. I asked for keys to be put on my belt. I have a key for the bar, key for the saloon, key for the house and a hanging watch. Check the time. I'm an mm-hmm. entrepreneur. I get stuff done. Now, in terms of my confidence, you're right. You can't teach it. I have two magnificent children. Who I would give my life for them, as would Andy. Um, one mirrors me. It's my mm-hmm. daughter, Amanda. She has great confidence and great ability to make decisions. And one mirrors Andy, who considers everything. Brandon, you know, Brandon was a merit scholar, went to Harvard. He's no slouch. Um, he's brilliant, but he sees 50 possibilities, or maybe I only saw two. I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know. Um, what but, for those who haven't read Lilyville yet, and they should, um, your entree into the world of the arts and wanting to be an artist as a dancer, as a singer, as a as a as an as a as an actress, where did those seeds first get planted for you? 
well, my mother, my mother played the classical piano, and I wanted to be near her. So I studied piano as a little girl, and just to be near my mother. And I think it's very significant that we never played a four-handed piece. So you want to talk about obstacles and trying to gain the mother's love. My father was a litigator, so he wrote his own plays, and he tried them out in the courtroom where people went to jail or didn't, you know. And he took me to the Supreme Court when I was five. He took me to the Supreme Court. I couldn't stay in the courtroom, but I saw it, and he had to try a case. And he always, I worked in his law library for a, a dollar an hour. I just wanted to be near my dad. Why did I want to be near my dad? Because he loved me unconditionally, and he knew death. His father died when he was 16 within a week, a very shocking death, and he was in the intelligence during the war. And he left. Um, he was drafted into the war. And then my mother got pregnant before he went to boot camp. And she gave birth to David in 1944. My father didn't show up till 1946, till David was over two years old. So when I was born, well, after the war, I was his first infant, and he never left my side. He understood that life in this body isn't forever, and he transmitted that value to me. And that is why we live each day to its fullest. I also think, to be honest with you, that the Jewish people have a great advantage because we understand uh, the possibility of extinction. And once you have extinction hovering over you as a specter, who has the most Nobels? Who has the most copyrights? Who has the most inventions? Little Israel. It's not even the size, what is it, the size of half a Connecticut or something? And because they're surrounded in their heads or in reality by people who would rather that they don't exist. So they make the most of each day and have unspeakable courage probably far more courage than I do. And I'm not Israeli. I am a dyed-in-the-wool American. I ain't making any Aliyah. God bless them for what they do. Um, I just send money and raise money for charities like Sherat Sedek and Ben-Gurion University and stuff like that. So my confidence, I think, came from Sid, and my common sense came from Lily. From Lily. She would say things like, if you fall in love with a boy, run, don't walk to his home. If it doesn't feel like a warm bath, it's a red flag. Mm. And when That's I went beautiful. to Michael Fairchild's, when I went to Michael Fairchild's home, and I was so besotted with this guy, I couldn't see straight. He was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. Um, uh, his parents were lovely, but they were missing. They were living in the uh, some in St. John's. Uh, they were travel agents, and they had their five o'clock cocktails. And he lived with his fabulous grandmother in Cold Spring Harbor, which until recently was a restricted neighborhood. And I got to see all sorts of places that normally they would not let us into. And I knew, I knew this would be the, uh, ultimately the wrong match. That to cross cultures in a marriage is a very big order. And if you have any cellular coincidence with somebody, you grab it. Unfortunately, Nikki Arnstein and Fanny Bryce did not have enough cellular coincidence. Fanny may be many things, and she was ambitious, and she may have been uh, driven uh, with excellence and humor to, to get to the top, but I don't think she was a thief. I don't think she was an embezzler. I mm -hmm. don't think she was a crook. And Nikki had to resort to things that he could not hold his head up high. That was against federal law and mm -hmm. went to jail. Went to mm -hmm. jail. What has kept you as passionate and engaged with the craft of storytelling as, as 
that young teenager who you saw recently 50 years ago to the day in terms of film and and you know I mean five decades what what is it that you look for what I mean you have choices which is an extraordinary thing um you you create your own work uh what is the thing that tells you yes this Well, I, first of all, I shut my eyes and go to the woman on the mountain, the me, the me that's the best me, and say, do I want to wake up every day doing this? Um, the greatest thing about our profession is the transformational invitation and also a way to cope with marriage. I have a very good marriage, but man, people want their wife and they want their mother. They are not the least bit interested in one standing ovation or not. I am not available to babysit Brandon's children, Amelia, aged six months, and Sidney May, his two daughters, aged two, on Saturday night. And I regret it. I feel badly. Of course, I have St. Andrew, who's going to go to Quagri. We have our summer home for Friday and Saturday. They come back by 6.30 at night to let my daughter-in-law, Jamie, and Brandon go out and babysit. So... Uh, you know, no matter when Andy and I would be the Bickersons, all the big mm -hmm. pillars were in, were intact. The love, we're not addicts, we're not addicted. I mean, maybe we're slightly addicted to food, like most of the tribe, but we're mm -hmm. not, not addicts. We're not crooks. We're not, you know, the big pillars are um, in in place. We really agree on family values. But when we bicker on the small details and we do a lot of things differently from one another, um, at five o'clock, when I get off the phone with you, I bike ride to the theater or I'll take the subway or I'll take an, uh, my Uber. They give me an allowance for a car and driver. Um, I will shut my eyes and go into the tunnel of Rosie Bryce. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the highlights of my day. It's one of the highlights of my day. Eight times a week, people screaming. Come on. And they scream for Julie Benko, too. So we have an American story inside American story. So here's Leah Michelle supposedly resurrecting her reputation. I mean, please, I haven't had a bad moment with this woman. She's an angel. She's an angel. So, I, you know, um, and then within that, we have Julie Banco building, spiraling up toward recognition. As I said mm -hmm. to her, this is your last standby, sweetie pie. This is it. This is your launch. She has a big following. Yeah. I mean, they may not sell every seat at the August Wilson on Thursday night, but it's a full house. Yeah, that's and incredible. So it's great. And that Leah takes Thursday off is brilliant with a piece like this and 22 changes and God knows how many. I think it's 22 costume changes. Are you kidding me? She does one Tuesday, two Wednesday rest, one Friday, two Saturday, one Sunday rest. And she's magnificent. There's never yeah. been a glitch, not even yeah. a glitch. And we finally have, despite COVID, all the members of the cast in the first choices you know, uh, in and uh, who were cast originally, who started previous March 26, except for, you know, Beanie and Jane. So Lee and I are there instead. And I love you, Beanie, and I love you, Jane. And thank you for all you do. And I mean it from my heart, from my heart. So what was the, um, the moment or the moments where you decided, I want to do this as a profession? Oh, when I was put on the wait list at Harvard Law School. 
So Harvard Law School and okay. I was and nobody lifted a finger in those days. I was a legacy. And instead of going to Harvard Law School, I applied for the McKnight Fellowship in Acting at the suggestion of my incredible brother, David Felchu, who had won it five years earlier. I applied for it. I won it. We were the first brother-sister act at the Guthrie, and David was made associate artistic director, I think, by the time I arrived. Mm -hmm. We went from being a supporting actor to being this associate artistic director. And that's how I met and was trained under Michael Langham and was basically a spear carrier for two years. And when it came my time to inherit Hermie, I write about this, they called me into the office and said, there's a principal actor in this company whose wife's unhappy, who's also an actress, and she wants your part, and we're giving it to her because it's important to keep this actor happy. It has nothing to do with your talent. But that was it for me. I said, I'm out of here. These people um, do not believe in me. I mm -hmm. am an a, a, I'm not e I'm not even a speck of dust to these people. You know, a person's a person no matter how small. He believed Dr. Spock now, uh, or whatever, the guy who wrote, yeah. Seuss. Dr. Seuss is now un under, we're all so accountable, God forbid. Yeah. Man, when I was a child, there was humor that you can't say now, it can't even cross your lips, you know, nothing. So anyway, a person's a person no matter how small, and I love love that quote. So that was, Michael Langham did me a great turn because that was, yeah, I remember coming home to David at 612 6th Avenue, Southeast in Minneapolis and crying my eyes out. And he would cast me in his play. Nepotism was a good thing. Not mm -hmm. in big parts. He had to go to Langham because Langham wanted, wanted to give that actress the part in his brother, my brother's play too, which was Italian Straw Hat. And my brother said, no, this one goes to Tova. She's my sister and she's had no break here. She's understudied all your size seven leading ladies. She has never gone on. She has worked hard and she's sitting there with two lines for two years, you know? So he gave me that part. And then we, we toured with uh, story theater where I played, you know, like a tubercular chicken and a tap dancing caterpillar. I also tap dancing funny girl. And uh, I kept diligently on with my lessons. And then, cause I could sing and dance, Cyrano was mounted as a musical. Michael Langham directing, and they said, how can we keep David Felchu and get rid of the sister? Because the sister was like, what? I said, at best, she'll be a performer. She'll never be an actress. He absolutely said that to me. You're a wonderful performer. You'll never be an actress. You know, I said, what should I do? Go on the trapeze? Little did I know that 45 years later, I would go on the trapeze for Fran and Barry Weisler. That's right. One of the greatest roles of my career. Yeah, Pippin. Pippin. Yeah. yeah. So they figured if they put me in Cyrano, they could get rid of me and with honor and keep him. And I had my three little roles, actress, poet, nun. And then Michelle Shea, God bless her, got a big job at the Negro Ensemble Company in New York, left to do that and left the food seller role vacant. And I could sing and dance and Langham said, oh, just give it to her. So they made me the food seller. And I, at the Palace Theater, the food seller has the first line. So in my Broadway debut, I started the play. Oranges, pomegranates, lemonade. I remember it. And I went to rehearsal one day in Minnesota and uh, Michael Langham was missing because he had been fired. And in his place was Michael Kidd, a little, a, a, a guy from the great choreographer of Seven Brides from Se for Seven Brothers and many, many other movie musicals. Basically a Jew from New York whose parents were Russian. And he loved me because 
I could dance and sing and I could do cartwheels. He said, can anybody do cartwheels? I said, I can do a cartwheel. I can do He said, Felcher, I want two cartwheels. Stage left, stage right. At the end of From Now Till Forever, the whole world of It was a, a conclusion of act one. And I did whatever he asked me to do. And anybody who couldn't sing and dance, he started to change the cast. And he came to see me in Golda's Balcony. Because from those 14 lines in a red dress, I was on the marquee in 18 months at the O'Neill Theater, having carried spears and been told I was gonna be nothing. I figured I'd be a chorus girl for the rest of my life, which was okay. I mean, Broadway was pretty exciting. And he came to see me in Golda's Balcony and he held my face in his hands and he cried and I cried. I said, you gave me my break. You gave me my break with 14 lines in a red dress. And if any actors are listening to this, always remember that you can make something of nothing. You just got to get down there and be specific, be really specific. And the first way to master something is to know you don't know. If you know you don't know, at least you have your feet on the ground. So with Rosie Bryce, there are many things I don't know. But to be a Jewish mother, this I know, because the Tova Felchunis typecast me over and over again. And then my job was to do how many different what is the difference between this person and this person, between Judy Stein and Daniel Melnick, who was not a mother, but a litigator, she was Sydney, and Rosie Bryce, whom I dedicate to Ada Tobias Kaplan, my British grandmother, who had a poker ring in the Bronx and was busted with Seal Somek and spent a night in jail. So there you go. There you go. Tova Felchu, I, I, I mean, I don't know if you have another little known fact hidden anywhere uh, in un, under your sleeve, um, you've shared so much. If there's any last thing that you can think of um, that might make listeners around the world feel like, oh, and you know what else Tova told me? Well, in terms of inspiration, I know it's a cliche, but don't give up. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on yourself. Um, the thing I say to myself, and it may be a little known fact, before I go on every night, and I did 592 Golda's Balconies, it became the longest running one woman play in the history of theater. And how many shows do you think I missed? Zero. And how many shows have I missed on Broadway in my career? That would be an unplanned absence, not an absence in the contract for your daughter's graduation. Zero. Zero. In my day, you didn't, you didn't call out. You didn't call mm -hmm. out. Let me let me tell you this. When the going gets rough, remember that's just one or two people's opinion. It's apples and oranges. I was up for a Neil Simon play and um, I auditioned and I was told by Jay Binder, God bless him, to prepare three scenes. I was in the finals and I came to audition and Gene Sachs let me get through one page, one page. And he said, thank you. That'll be all. I said, what, it was lost in Yonkers. I said, what do you, what do you mean? He said, you're never going to get this part, and I don't want to waste your time. I said, please, Mr. Sachs. I, Mr. Sachs, I, I prepared all this material. Can I get through the scene? No. And I said, thank you very much, and I left the theater. And to say that I was weeping would be putting it mildly. I felt I'd been done an unfair term, and it was in front of Neil Simon, for whom I would eventually play his mother in a show that never got produced, but I did it with Matthew Broderick. It just never got out of the reading stage. 
and I took a cab home, crying, and the cab in front of me hit a human being, and the human being came flying over that cab right in front of our car, which did not hit her, and I stopped our taxi, and I held this human being's head in my lap until the ambulance came for her, and she was alive. She was alive. She just actually was negligent. She wasn't looking. Uh, and she was crossing the street against the light. She wasn't even in a crosswalk. It was on West End Avenue. And not only did it set my value straight, but years later, I, I'm, a, I'm a runner, and I was running around the reservoir, and I met Gene Sachs, and he said, Tova, I'm so thrilled to see you. I said, can I say something before we both die? I had this terrible experience with you where you dismissed me. Um, and he said, I dismissed you because you were so bright you were so wonderful. You were never going to get this part, and I really didn't want to waste your time. I said, well, I, I took it a different way. And he said, that was your choice. You know, I really believe in you. And you are, you know, you're important in this business. He was very, very kind. So remember, your perceived value doesn't come from you. It comes from the way people see you and the way you imagine they see you. So believe in yourself, shine your light and spread your light and stick with it. Be loyal to your light. Tova, Felchu, thank you for being on the podcast and thank you for your glorious, glorious work. Congratulations on this moment and all the moments ahead. And thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Alana Levine. One more thing, I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you.